Well, as I like to say, for those of you keeping score, we're, we're in chapter 10 of Mark. And if you've been watching the pattern, uh, this, Jesus is now for the third time told his followers what's going to happen to him. And if this is like at all, like the last two times he told them um, what was going to happen to him, the, the only thing that we, right, what's coming next is what? The disciples are about to say something really dumb. There's, there's just no two ways about it. Jesus gives them this deep revelation about the way of the cross, about the kingdom of God, about who he is, and the only thing that the disciples can do is say something dumb. So I just, I can't wait. What is it going to be this time? What has Peter thought up this time? So we're going to start in um, chapter 10, verse 35, but before we do, let's pray. Father, we know that in the midst of your glorious revelation of yourself, in, in your goodness and your kindness and your provision for us, we know that we too, in response, do and say dumb things. We pray, Lord God, that you would, by your word this morning, show us not Peter and John and James and the disciples as much as you would show us ourselves. Show us what's in our hearts and what's in our minds, that we may cast it out, that we may cast it upon Christ and be healed of it and be um, cleansed of it and become wiser, to become people who say and do fewer dumb things, that we would stand as Christ stood, that we would go about our business as he went about his business with so much determination and zeal that it literally frightened his followers. We pray, Lord God, that we would today become more like your Son by the power of your Son, by looking at the story of your Son, in whose name we pray, and amen. Amen. So Jesus has explained his theology of the cross again, outlining his plan of salvation for the whole world. And afterwards, the sons of thunder, as they're called, Peter gets off the hook this week. It's not Peter who comes to Jesus this time. It's the Sons of Thunder. And I like that name for them. I like that name for them. It's it's a name I use for my own sons. Because there's something about boys that just lends itself to this concept, Sons of Thunder. They come to Jesus, and what they want to discuss is their own theology now of glory. They've, They've heard Jesus. They've heard him out. Okay, Jesus, this is, this is your theology of the cross, theology of suffering, theology of messiahship. Now, we have a few things to tell you, to demand of you, dealing with our theology of glory. Something in the manner of Jesus has convinced them that the hour of the establishment of his kingdom is near. So, so they want to beat the other ten disciples to the punch. Clearly something is happening now. Clearly things are going to change. Clearly Jesus is going to do something. And so if he's going to do something, we want to be first in line. right? Well, we, we don't want to be in his place, but we want to be right behind him. We want to be the first recipients of whatever glory is coming down the road. They're completely unsure is exactly what it is Jesus is going to do, how he's going to do it, and exactly what's going to be the result. But whatever it is, they want in. Right? We'll, we'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. We'll do whatever we got to do. We'll go where you go, and we'll reap all the benefits you reap, baby. 
the petty selfishness of his followers at this moment, right after explaining what is about to happen to himself, Jesus' mind is full of what is coming for him. To then hear this request from his own followers, the, the followers who were closest to him, the follower, John, is the one he loved. Your best friend now, the one you love, is going to come to you right after you've explained what's, what, the terrible things that are going to happen to you, and he, doesn't, he, he demands of you glory. <clears throat> if, you, if you think you've ever had a bad friend, you have no idea. Right? And th- this is what makes Jesus so approachable for us. This is what makes him such a beneficial savior and, and, and mediator. It's because <laughs> he's, hey guys, I am going to go die for the world. Cool. His best friend says, cool, 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 good. Good on you. Right? So what I would like now is to make sure you, you understand what I get in this process. <laughs> and if you had a friend who talks to you this way, what? I can't imagine the patience that Jesus had. His patience is like in, uh, um, the concept of, an, uh, of eternity. I can't really understand eternity. For Jesus to put up with this kind of nonsense is something that's very difficult for me to understand. He would have ceased to be the friend I loved at that point. <laughs> Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, Oh, okay, well, as long as you start with a a title of respect. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, very, very humble of you guys, very humble. Jesus said to them, okay, guys, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Okay, well, you know, again, as long as, long as it's a humble request. <laughs> now, the place of honor is the seat on the right, and next to it, the seat on the left. Okay? My wife sits on my right hand at the dinner table. This is a thing that we do. I try to make sure she sits right here at my right hand, right? Because we're a patriarchy. I'm just going to say it. We are. And I have no problem with that. And it's important to understand how authority falls from me all the way down, right? So my wife sits on my right hand, my eldest generally sits on my left, and then it's followed down the line to the baby on the other end of the table, who the, usually the other young two kids have to help during dinner. Far from me down on that end. Maybe I should rethink this, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was supposed to be a joke. I guess that joke's on me. But this is, uh, I, I, this is something, I, I go to my father's house, right? And automatically, the, the, the kids, my kids are setting up for dinner, and so they put me at the head of the table, and I have to go rushing in there and say, no, 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 that's Grandpa's spot. Don't, don't do that. I'm at his right hand. So the right and the left hand, for us, I mean, when we go, if you go out to lunch with friends, are you that concerned about who sits at your right and your left? Generally not. Most of the time when we have a big banquet, Right? We don't really live in a society where we care that much about these kinds of things. I think it's very difficult for us to understand this kind of symbolism. Right? To sit down at the right hand of whoever is the highest <laughs> positioned person at the table is, is, is to actually assume a great 
right? You're assuming a lot about yourself at that point. Jesus makes this point. It's, it's better to take the lower place and to be called up to the front opposed to taking the front for yourself and have to be told to go down. And, and, and things like that in, in our egalitarian society are very difficult for us to understand. So at, at one, in one sense, you know, what they're asking seems selfish, but it doesn't seem dangerous. I, I would say what they're asking is an extraordinarily dangerous thing. Um, the, 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 the right-hand man of Hitler notoriously ended up in concentration camps again and again and again. Right? To sit at the right hand of power is a very dangerous place to sit, actually. Uh, this is why most presidents go through uh, chiefs of staff. They go through several of them. It's a dangerous place to be the right-hand man of the President of the United States. And after about 18 months, people usually can't do it anymore. It's about as long as they can last. There's a, something similar, just to give us an understanding here. One of David's sons came to, came to David and asked to marry one of his concubines. And, and the thing is, if, when you, you know, it's sitting at the right hand, the left hand, taking a great king's wife or concubine as your wife is to replace him. You're taking his place. And, and men who did this in the Old Testament were, were saying something about their own authority and power, and it was considered to a certain extent a coup. This is why Absalom, another of David's sons, takes all of his wives up and sleeps with them on a, on a, a rooftop where everybody can see it. He wants, no, he wants everybody to be very clear. He wants it to be very clear for everyone exactly what it is he's doing. He's taking his father's place. And when David's other son asks to marry one of his concubines, uh, it's a, right, he end up, that does not go well for him. Because really what he's asking is, is asking to take the place of David. For James and John to be requesting this isn't just that their power, I mean, it isn't that they just think a lot of themselves and they're, they're arrogant and so we all laugh. They really are, are, are playing power politics now. Right? This is like somebody who gives a lot of money to a presidential candidate uh, expecting to become like the secretary, right, the undersecretary of the interior or something. These, they're, they're requesting more than just a nice comfy chair. Right? It's not just that the, the chairs on the right and left of the king are comfier. Uh, this is, we, we were just in Ireland. This is actually true. I didn't really realize this, but you go in this room and here's all these stools and this is where all the, the head, you know, these heads of departments sit. And then there's the, the chair for the president and the vice president and the prime minister and they're all glorious. And it's kind of hard to tell the difference between the two of them. And I was like, man, I'd want to be vice president just because the chair is nicer. That's not what John and James are thinking here. Josephus, who wrote uh, a book called Antiquities, A History of the Israelites, this is actually what he says um, referring to Saul's court, to give you a sense of this. On the next day, which was the new moon, the king, when he had purified himself, as the custom was, came to supper. And when there sat by him his son Jonathan on his right hand and Abner, the captain of his army, on the other. Right. So the prince is on the right hand and the captain of his armies is on his left hand. Why? Because right after him, they're the two most important people in the whole kingdom. Now, do you think those are dangerous places to be sitting? Right? If you go on and you look at the life of Jonathan, he's uh, involved in all kinds of court intrigues with David and war. Right? That's a, that, to sit at the right hand, Jonathan is sitting at the right hand of the king, and that, his life shows you how dangerous it can be. There's all kinds of conspiracies to kill him. There's conspiracies by him against his father. 
it's not, it's not just that it's a cushier place to sit. James and John are coming to Jesus, who they think is going to become the emperor of the whole world, to have legions upon legions, to have a tax system over the entire created world. And they, they want to be the two top dogs. They, they, They are asking for that position for themselves. Can I be the vice president and the head of Senate, please? I mean, could you imagine if we had a political system like this where we voted for a president and just the two of his followers came up to him and said, hey, I'd like to be in charge of Congress. I'd like to be in charge of the Supreme Court. Is that okay? Right? What would we think of men like that? What would we think of a president who gave them those positions? That's not how it works. We We would all think that was extraordinarily tyrannical to just be giving away those positions the way, that way. And so what does this say about John and James' ethics, about their understanding of power and, and, and how to attain it and who's worthy of it? They don't come to him and say, hey, Jesus, we, you know, we love you and we love Israel so much so that we want to advise you and talk to you about who you're going to choose for these positions because they're really important and we're concerned about you making the right decision. That's what a wise man would do. Right? One of my favorite bishops in, in, in history was a man who um, they, they, they voted on him becoming a bishop and he actually snuck out of the town in the middle of the night and fled to the woods. And, and, and he, was, he, was a, he was a school marmy kind of guy. He didn't realize you could track a person. And so they found him in a tree quite easily. And then they brought him back. And then, and then the next day he ran away again. Now, if I were the people in this town, I'd be like, not only did you choose wisely, I'm, I'm all for this guy. The guy who doesn't want it is the guy I want to have it. And, and uh, <laughs> he, the first three months of, his, uh, of being bishop, they actually chained him to the desk and wouldn't let him leave. He was under guard in his own palace. And he went on to be one of the greatest bishops that the church has ever had. Right? <laughs> if, if I were the disciples and I heard James and John ask this question, I would actually be very concerned personally about, the, like, that would, I would, you're dangerous people who I'm going to now keep an eye on. You're going to make that kind of request for yourself. I am no longer comfortable with you. Right? And this is what it's like at the very top in, in the inner circles of power is this kind of backstabby, um, self-seeking stuff that makes it so nasty. Right? How's the deep state doing right now with a very popular president? You can see the daggers are out. You can see all the machinations going on. And, and that's what James and John are, 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 are involved in, that kind of ugliness. These are supposed to be men who are leading the church. Now, what's very odd about James and John is that they actually already had this position. Whenever they sit down and eat, the person at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus is already John and James. At the Last Supper, Peter, (laughs) who's not near Jesus, he's down a ways, calls out to John, hey, you're sitting next to Jesus, ask him this question. And this happens several times in the Gospels. Whenever they sit down to eat, John and James are already there. So why are they asking then to be placed at his right hand and his left hand? What do they mean? I, they don't just mean they want to be next to Jesus when the fish gets handed out because he right gets first choice, which means then I would get second choice. 
Because if you've ever been at a large dinner, the person you don't want to be when they're handing out the food is the 13th person. Because by the time you get to the steaks, the steaks are tiny. Right? There's all kinds of things going on here. And and what I want to do is clear off the table what isn't going on. They don't want to just be near Jesus because it's the most comfortable chairs. They don't want to be near Jesus because they get the second shot at the steaks. They're not even talking about mealtime because mealtime, they already have this position. We also find out that the two of them are related to the high priest. So they already think a lot of themselves because they sit at Jesus' right and and left hands when they eat. We find out later in John that they're actually related to the high priest, which comes with a lot of authority because when you're related to the high priest, you could actually become high priest because you're related to him. So are they thinking now of a coup of their own? Well, Jesus will be the high king, and now he's going to need some new high priests because he's going to go clean house and get rid of all those nasty people who are in Jerusalem now, and he's going to need some new high priests. Well, who better than the guys who already sit at his right and left hand who are, in fact, related to the family of the high priests? But let's talk for a moment about the way they word it. Oh, Jesus, high king of heaven and earth, Please, 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 let me have some position in your throne room, in your kingdom, once you come into it. No. They come to him and they think they've got enough on Jesus to demand something. Right? Now, if I do a favor for the, if I'm the president of the United States and I do a favor for the president of Ukraine, (coughs) hypothetically, (laughs) that president is going to owe me a favor. So I call him on the phone and I'm going to call that favor in. Hey, I've got some trouble here with this idiot, hypothetical, and I need you to do some digging for me. Could you do that for me? Yes, I'll, I will make sure you guys get that money. Now, what, what is it that they think they've got on Jesus where they can make demands of him as if he owes them something? Like when he went up on the high mountain, they didn't turn him in? When he, I mean, what is it exactly that they think they've got on Jesus to demand things from him? The, the, the more you look into this, this story, the worse John and James look. They, they must think they've got something pretty big. I, I, and at this point, I can't say what it is, but you don't go up to people with this much authority and power and just start demanding things from them unless you think you've got something on them. Now, all along, we know that the Pharisees have been sniffing around trying to find something on Jesus. What is it that Judas hands over? Well, he gets, right? He hands Jesus over. He goes and he makes a deal with the very people that want Jesus dead. And, and he gets 30 pieces of silver out of it. And he think, right? He becomes somebody because he's wheeling and dealing with high priests now. Well, what is it that John and James are getting at here? What will they do if, they, if Jesus doesn't give them their demands? This is very strange. And it tells us a lot about what's going on about the inner circle of Jesus at this particular time. And it doesn't look very, <laughs> it doesn't look that much different than what's going on right now in Congress. I think it's very important to understand that. These guys are not upstanding. They're not going about this in an upstanding way. They're not worried about meritocracy, where, you know, merit earns you something. And exactly what is it, are they threatening Jesus with? Because you only make demands when you can do something to someone, right? (laughs) 
I have kids. I only demand them to do things because if they don't do them, I can spank them. I can discipline them. Right? If you take that off the table, uh, kids, go clean the bathroom becomes a meaningless phrase. Right? I can't order them to do anything. This is a very dark situation here. And, and it, things are not going well amongst Jesus' inner circle. Because that's another thing. James and John and Peter are the three people closest to Jesus. He goes off by himself, Jesus does. He takes three people with him, and it's these three. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. This is what it says of King David's inner circle. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashebeth. You're welcome, Joel, for not making you read this today. Josheb, Bashebeth. He was the chief of the three. Because King David had an inner circle, and they were his three mightiest men. This particular gentleman wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Okay, that's... Wow. What, two of my favorite Medal of Honor recipients were the snipers in, um, you know, in Black Hawk Down. They were lowered down to the ground and they, they, at this helicopter where they knew they weren't going to come back. And, and they were quite something. They were a soldier, soldier. And it's the, these two snipers against a horde of people, and they had over 800 confirmed kills that day between the two of them. And they had rifles <laughs> and, and handguns. And I, and, and, right, in our house, we, we talk about them and we think of them and we host drinks to them because that, that is a manly feat. But to kill 800 people and all you've got is like a dagger and a sword, that's, that's actually kind of hard to imagine. That's a lot of hacking. I get tired carving a turkey. <laughs> what is it that John and James have accomplished where they think they're equal to this guy? Right? I mean, the, the, there's a lot to be said about the arrogance, but to think you're going to be living right as a descendant, as, as, as someone who's taking this guy's mantle, you've got to have a lot of swagger to just go around thinking you're going to replace somebody like this. Who does Jesus have in his cohort at this moment that equals this guy? And if you go back and you look, this is a good guy. This, is, this guy was in David's inner circle for a reason, not just because he could kill 800 dudes at one time, which is a lot, who do James and John think they are? Now, when it comes to these moments, what, what, like, let, let's pause for a moment and think about this in our, in our current context. How many of you can walk up to Jesus maybe because he's sitting there at the head of the table or you're lounging around on the Sabbath afternoon after you've been to church, and you, you go up to Jesus and you make demands of him. <laughs> Nobody does that because Jesus is in heaven. However, when we kneel in prayer, how much of our prayer life sounds exactly like what these two are doing? Right? I'm just going to let you think about that for a moment. Because we don't have a physical Jesus to interact with. But in Philippians it says, he's as close as our right hand. I've made this point many a times. Jesus is the person that we go to. Jesus is the one where we're concerned about life. We're concerned about ourselves. We're concerned about the machinations of the world around us. And we go to him. And how often, when we get on our knees, if we get on our knees, is the prayer, Jesus, I have some demands for you. Like we're robbing a bank. 
How often are our prayers, right, like us passing a note across to the bank teller? (laughs) Just put the money in the bag, Jesus. Okay? Just put the money in the bag. Don't ring the bell. I've got a bomb. I mean, that, what are they doing here? And how often do our prayers sound just like this? Where we think we've got something on Jesus because of his grace, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, because we're in the covenant, because we go to church, because we read our Bibles, because we come home at the end of the night to our families, because we're raising all these kids. How often does all of that turn into something in which we feel we can demand things of Jesus? How often are our prayers concerned about us participating in God's glory, right? We, right? we understand thrones and glory. We get that. Nobody needs to explain that to us. Oh, Jesus is the high king. I understand a high king. He wears gold armor and he lives in a palace. And when we start talking about heaven, that's exactly how we describe it. And, right, he's got the scepter, the rod of iron ruling the world. And what we want is we want in on some of that glory. Our Father who art in heaven, get ready, I've got a long list. I've got a few demands. How often does our prayer life sound exactly like that? Now, if we carry this idea forward, let's see actually what happens here. They've come to Jesus making all these demands. There's all kinds of dark stuff going on in the background of this demand. And, but what is Jesus' response? Mark chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. I like, I, this, is, this is a Jesus I could get behind. He's, he looks them square in the eye and he says, listen, you guys don't know what you're asking. Hey, that's a really polite way of saying that's a dumb question. You guys are idiots, Right? I like Jesus. That's what I would have said. That's subcontext here. That's not what he says. But just imagine, right? You think you've got the swagger to make demands of him, and his response is, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Now, if you are James and John at this moment, given what you just asked, how would you respond to Jesus answering you that way? Who in the do you think you are? Where do you get off talking to me like that? This is how Jesus should, and I'm going to be very honest with you, this is how he does respond to a lot of our prayers, because a lot of our prayers don't arise above what James and John have done here. Dear God, please, fill in the blank. This is what I want you to do for me, because somehow I feel like I've got something on you and you owe me something, and so I'm going to tell you what it is I want, How often is Jesus' answer, you don't have a clue about what you're talking about? And many of us are like, what are you talking about? I don't hear him say anything. Okay. How often do you actually write down what you pray about and then write down, right, write down the day you prayed it and then come back later and write down the day that it was answered? I think we should try that for a little while. I think we'd be surprised. I think if we go back, because this, I, I, I did something like this, and I was shocked by what I asked. Because I went back and I looked at what I asked, and I thought, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You had no idea what was going on in that situation. What are you thinking? Asking that in a prayer. 
You do not know what you are asking. So many of our prayers are just like that. Because we come at it like James and John are doing here. Now, Jesus, he goes on in verse 38. He asks them two questions. So not he stops them short and says, listen, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But I have two questions for you. I'm not, he doesn't even answer their question, really. He doesn't say yes or no. He just tells them they're, they're idiots. And then he says, I got two questions for you. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? <laughs> Jesus, I'm talking about sending your right hand, your left hand, man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? And this actually does sound like a lot of my prayers right here. Just all this confusion on my side. I'm going to make these demands. Jesus is going to respond. I don't understand his response, so I'm just going to make more demands. I don't keep track. I just, whatever. I, you're a vending machine. I put the quarter in. I said, dear Jesus. I said, Father in heaven. Right? I put the buck 50 in, and I want a Snickers bar. What do you mean I don't know what I'm talking about? Give me the Snickers bar. Right? You're, you're a covenant God who fulfills his promises, and he said when I pray, anything I ask, you will give me. And there's no qualifications about that. And I want a Snickers bar, so give me my Snickers bar. And this is funny, but this, if we recorded ourselves, is exactly what the exchange between us and the living God sounds like. Now, prayer life does not work like this. You're driving down the road, and you think, you know, I can't reach my phone from here, so instead of GPS, I'm going to use Jesus. Jesus, should I turn left or right? And you get this audible voice saying, turn left. <laughs> right? You don't go to Jesus and ask him stuff, and then he responds directly like that in an audible voice. If he does, come and see me on Monday. Okay? If you are having these experiences, I would like to talk to you. Not right now. Right? This, this, is, this is what happens. All right? Right? You sit in your living room. There's this, unopened. And you're sitting there stressing out, making demands, right? passing the note across, just fill the bag with money, don't ask questions, thinking, man, if God would only speak to me, if he would just answer. Right? How, how is it that he talks to us? Because there is an audible voice speaking to us all the time. And, and a large part of the problem with our prayer lives is that it's completely disconnected from this, right? I, I actually pray sometimes because I know my own heart and I know that I make banknote requests of God all the time. As I think, okay, I'm going to pray real fast to give me understanding that I read this. And then I read this and then I, okay, this is what I need to pray about. God is talking to me and I'm now going to respond by praying to him. Because that's what these questions he's asking is exactly what it's, this is how it's supposed to work. We come to him and we've got concerns, we've got cares, we know who he is, we know who we are, and what we need to do is have more of a dialogue and less of a monologue. How often do your prayers come out of the thing that you've read in the word of God? Well, you know, We have so many excuses. We have so many bad habits when it comes to this. And, and, and frankly, we kind of like the banknote version of prayer because we feel, right? We're just getting it off our chest. I have so many concerns and I have so many cares and the God of the universe who knows everything needs to hear me out. 
Is that really what needs to happen? Do you really need to tell him what's going on? Or do you need to say, tell me what's going on? Tell me what's going on. You know I don't, so I'm not going to sit here and listen to myself talk for three minutes. I'm going to ask you to tell me what I need to know. What do I need to do? You slide the banknote across to me. How about that? And I'll put whatever I need in the bag. That's not how we address prayer, and, but that's how we ought to address prayer. So we look at James and John, and we think this has to do with what? Where they sit when they eat at a banquet? No. James and John are you. And there's all kinds of weird motivations going on in your life, and that doesn't stop you from getting on your knees and putting a dollar fifty in and asking for a Snickers bar. Well, let me rephrase that. Demanding a Snickers bar. Supersize, baby. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do James and John know their own intentions? If I walked up to them in the middle of this conversation, I'd be like, why are you asking this question? What is really going on in your heart? Do you think they would at all be able to answer me? If I walked up to you on Wednesday, right? you're, you're kneeling down to prayer, and it's Mike. And Mike is there, and I'm like, hey, what is the intentions of your heart right now in this prayer you're about to pray? Do you think you'd be able to tell me? I'm going to confess something to all of you. If you right, I'm up here telling you guys about this. If you came to my house on Wednesday, or you came into my car on a Tuesday afternoon when I'm driving around, I wouldn't know. You mean, you know what? I'm really kind of just stressed out about money. I really am just sort of hungry. So I'm kind of praying right now. I don't really know what. I just feel this need in my stomach, I suppose. I'm a little distracted because the song that I just heard is still floating around in my mind. Or I'm really concerned about so-and-so. But, you know, when I'm in my car, I pray. And so I'm here praying, and I don't really understand what's going on inside my heart. We've got to deal with the fact when we get on our knees to talk to the Lord of heaven and earth that he already, right, he is in fact God. So that eliminates a great deal of nonsense that we say. And what we have to deal with right out of the gate is the fact that we don't understand our own hearts. That we think we, right, do this, Jesus, and do that, Jesus, and make sure you do this to that guy and this to that gal because, man, they need it, and we don't have a clue what we're talking about. Right? Oh, okay, well, you know what it started to make me nervous is when people say they will pray for me. In a weird way, this is actually starting to make me a little nervous because I'm kind of—I kind of want to ask him now. What are you going to pray? <laughs> because I say that, and I go and I find myself praying I, right well into this situation that I know nothing about. Well, do this and that and this and that. Tie a little bow on that baby by Christmas, and everyone's good. Right now, when I go to pray for somebody, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, you know what's going on. I don't think I need to know what's going on. I think they need to know what's going on. Amen. Next. Well, I think I know what's going on here, but I don't really know what's going on. You know what's going on. Pray, I pray, Lord God, that they would know what's going on. Amen. Next name on the list. <laughs> and to a certain extent, my prayers have gotten a little repetitive, but I think they've gotten safer. <laughs> Amen. 
What does God have to say about the situation you're in? He's not silent because his word of God is right here. Read that, okay? What does he want? What is he hoping to achieve? What, what does he hope for people who are suffering, people who are drug addicts, people who know Jesus but don't want anything to do with him? If you open the word of God, there's a great deal in there about what he thinks about everything. And, and so then what you can do is like, okay, well, I read this, and I'm not even, okay, Mike said to read it and then pray. Okay, now I'm reading it, and I'm really confused because that didn't really seem, right, these prophets in Isaiah don't really seem to have anything to do with my sister and her marriage. Well, what do you do then? Um, Jesus, I don't really know what's going on over there. I know you know what's going on over there. You know how this applies. You know Isaiah. You know these words. You know Jesus. I pray, Lord, they would know what's going on. Amen. (laughs) Just go with that. See, we want to pray like we are God. Like we know it all. We've got it all figured out. We don't like to pray like we need a God. Right? And James and John, what, what is... They want to be in Jesus' Jesus' glory with him, but do they really want, right? Are they asking to be near him? Is that really what's motivating them? Let me be as near to you as possible. That's not what's motivating them. Jesus asks two very specific questions in response to their desire to be with him in his glory. Because they think his glory is what? Crowns, crown jewels, scepters, power, chariots, golden armor. Jesus asks them two very weird questions. Can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized. And they would be like, wait a minute, I've been reading along here since the beginning, and you were baptized way back in chapter 1, Jesus. And if you don't recall, I was also there, and I was too baptized. So, sure, I guess, yes, I can. Because I did it already. And, yeah, I drink out of your cup all the time. I'm always, like, right there at your right hand, and it's a good place to be because the wine's always better there. Poor Peter, down on the very end of the table, is always has the leftovers, the dregs. What is Jesus talking about? The cup has a long Old Testament um, symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism in this cup. And what it symbolizes is actually the wrath of God and suffering. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is a cup. The, the Lord God has a cup, and what he's done is he has prepared it for the nations who hate him, and it's full of his wrath, and they're going to drink it down, and they're going to get drunk on it, and they're going to stagger, and they're going to fall, and they're not going to rise. And this is the cup that Jesus is talking about in the garden when he says, I'm not thirsty, God, I, can't, I don't want to drink from this cup. Right? Why do I have to drink your wrath? I'm your son, for goodness sakes. I am the son. I'm, I have never done anything but please you. Why do I have to drink of that cup? If there's any other way but drinking of this cup that's for wicked people, 
Let's come up with that plan. Right? There's this cup that's coming for Jesus, and he's going to drink it down to the bottom. Right? And he asked them, are you, James and John, you want some glory? You guys want my glory? Can you drink that cup of wrath, that cup of wrath that actually causes him, Jesus, to ask for something else? You guys, you guys can drink that. Baptism is something very similar. It, you know, in the, in, in the very beginning, God separated the waters from the land. So whenever he brings the two things back together, it's always bad, it's always judgment. This is why the flood is the flood, because he separated land and water. So when he lets the water out of its home and just lets it run loose over the land, that's not good. Right? If you go to Jonah chapter 2, down, 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 in the bottom of the water is Jonah praying for God to deliver him because the waves have gone up over his head. He is baptized in the wrath of God. The water splits at the Red Sea, and everybody walks, all the people of Israel walk down the middle, and, and the water sprinkles down on top of them like an anointing, and they're baptized. And then what happens? Well, the Egyptians are also baptized. <laughs> right? And they're swallowed up, never to rise again. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, guys, do you want some glory? Are you willing to go with me and Jonah down to the bottom? All the way to the bottom. Are you willing to stay behind from Israel and be the one swallowed up by the Red Sea on their behalf? Now, there's no possible way, right? Nobody is so self-deluded that Jesus would ask these two questions and they would answer with anything but, yeah, actually, no. Uh, Jesus, okay, we were wrong, Right? The questions he's asking, the, the immediate response, even if you don't quite understand them, should just be like, blah, 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 blah. nobody would be so arrogant as to say yes, right? Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. Guys, guys, guys. Now, thank goodness, right? He's left that metaphor of our own prayer life behind. Because these guys are idiots. We can all look at this and we can say, guys, you're just not that bright. When somebody like Jesus, given the weird things that he has said and the weird things that he's done, asks you these kinds of questions, just be quiet. You'll look smarter. Right? But we're way smarter than these guys, right? We never go to God in prayer and ask him to do great things through us assuming that we can do great things in his name, right? When we go to God and we're like, hey, you know, you know what? Put me in, coach. We're, we're getting killed out there. You know what we need is to put me in. Put me in the game. Let me get involved in your work. Let me do it. Because, again, we're confused about exactly what it is we're participating in because if he's ruling and reigning from heaven with a rod of iron, yes, please put me in the game. I'll take a rod of iron. I will smash a few things. I, I'm an iconoclast. Let me go to work for you. You have all authority in heaven and earth. Yes, please, let me have some of that. You see, we've forgotten what the baptism in the cup is all about. We think we're participating in the part of the resurrection, right? It's all resurrection for us now. We've forgotten that when we want to do the Lord's work, there's only one way that it works. You want a crown, first comes the cross. There's no other way. 
And so we go to the Lord God asking him to do things through us that if we actually thought about what it required from us would give us pause. We'd be like, okay, let me raise the kind of kids that do your work in the world, right? There's some parents who are like, man, um, this dying stuff that you want me to do to save the culture and the community, and that sounds pretty bad. But what I'm going to do is I'll raise some kids to do it. And I actually know parents who actually kind of think this way. The, they send the parent, right? They send the kids out in the world to get involved in things, but the parents are always sort of at home. The parents aren't as involved nearly as much as what the kids are doing. You're like, what? Okay, I'm just going to set that aside. If you're, if you're, right? There, there is one way to avoid it, and that is to not get involved at all. There's this other thing that we do, which is a lot like what James and John do, is ask God to do great things for us, thinking that it's all glory and goodness and gold-plated, not that it's a cup of wrath and a baptism that is going to drown us. And if we stopped and thought about what we were actually asking God to do through us, we might pray slightly differently. Or what it would do... <laughs> hopefully, is to call forth from us a little more faith. Do I really want to do that? Do I really want the people in my workplace to be believers? There's only one way to make that happen, and that's through a lot of dying. And do you really want to do that dying? This is not unlike the, way, the conversation that Jesus Christ has with every one of you every week. You come to him with your demands, and he asks you, are you really capable of doing that? I will gladly, even though you've asked like a stubborn little child for this thing, grant it to you as long as you're willing to count the cost, which is what he's doing to James and John. You want some of my glory? Cool. Can you be baptized with my baptism? Can you drink from my cup? And they just arrogantly, without even, yes, baby, bring it. Put me in charge of something. If I were president for a day, right, I'm sure... Even this president has to do a little dying from time to time. That kind of ego, there's got to be some dying at some point, right? If he's as, I mean, seriously, think about it. If he's as egotistical as he is, there's a lot of that ego that he, he's got to hide. <laughs> Even with Twitter. We want that kind of authority. We want that glory. We want it. And, and we have no idea about counting the cost. Because we think it's all resurrection. We think it's all heaven, where the, you know, at the Jesus' right hand, it's just nothing but choirs and streets paved with gold, and it's going to be glorious, and there's no suffering, and there's no difficulty. The Christians who are right now in Iran doing the work of Jesus Christ are doing it by shedding their own blood. Right? And, and we have a difficult time giving more than 10% of what we earn, because that's painful for us, because really that's, our wallets are a big deal in our lives, right? We want to do great things, <laughs> but we got a lot of stuff to do also, right? We got kids, and we got sports, and we got theater, and we got, you know, I, I need a little me time. I like to sit in the sauna. I like to go, you know, get my nails done, my hair done. I don't want to look like a homeless person. I got stuff, I got, oh, yeah, but Jesus, please use me. You're at cross-purposes there, people. Cross-purposes. <laughs> I 
as the person who is responsible for your souls, I'm going to say that perhaps what some of us need to do is pray more. Some of us need to back off a little bit what we're asking God to do, frankly, because we have no idea what it actually is going to cost us to do it. We need to stop, slow down, think, read the word of God, consider our circumstances, and are we really, are we really willing to drink the cup and, and, and receive the baptism of Jesus in order to have his kingdom come into this world? Because his kingdom comes in one way and one way only. I've used up a lot of time. I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm actually going to cut this short, but this is good because this is the best part of the whole sermon. Jesus says to them, right? They, they say we are able, which is insane. It's the most insane thing that you could possibly say to them. And what does Jesus do? At that point, I would probably pick up a boulder and drop it on them like a Jedi. I'm sure Jesus could do that. Just be like, all this rock comes from Jerusalem itself smashing them into the ground. That's not what he does. He doesn't even skip a beat. Listen to what he says. Listen to the comfort, right? What comfort do these guys deserve? What balm do they deserve? How foolish are they? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Okay, so now everything that I've said, everything I'm thinking, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about? John doesn't even die a martyr. They tried. One of the tra traditional stories about him I love is they kept throwing him in boiling oil, and it, he didn't boil. Right? They stick him in the boiling oil, and after a while, he's this old 98-year-old man. They're like, drop him in the boiling oil again. Maybe there was something wrong with the oil. And they leave him in there for a while, and then they pull him out, and you know what? He's fine. And they did that three times, and then they left him alone. And he, he like lived in the rocks somewhere, just praying to Jesus. What is he talking about? I mean, poor James actually does, right? They, they do some nasty, terrible things to him. He does understand a little bit better than he does at this moment. He comes to realize something of what Jesus was talking about. But, but I, if we think that they go on and have a, the end that Jesus had, I think we're missing what he really means. Because we all drink Jesus' cup. We all are baptized in his baptism. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our actual baptism with water into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is the sign and seal of the new covenant, signifying that we are, in fact, united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, in his humiliation and his exaltation. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We went down in the water all the way to the bottom with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ, he asks. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of Jesus. See, this is what Jesus did. He took the cup and he drank all the wrath down until there was nothing left. And then that's what he poured his blood into. And that is what he has set now before us here. So we are, in fact, drinking of his cup. (laughs) But he took all the terror out of it. He took the sting of death out of it. He took the frightfulness out of it. So when he says to them, yeah, you guys will actually be baptized with my baptism and you actually will drink out of my cup, it's because he took care of all the terrifying part of it. He absorbed it in himself. Right? The water was poured on his head, the head of the church, and by the time it gets down to his body, the rest of the parts, it's clean, pure, sanctifying, glorious water that refreshes and cleanses us and gives us life. In one sense now, we can say, okay, Jesus, all right, yeah, I, I am willing. I am willing to, uh, to take on your baptism. That's what we do when we get baptized. I am willing to drink this cup because I go every Sunday and I participate in it. And so you've taken all the terror out of it now. What do you need me to do? What are your demands of me? I want to participate in your glory, your reign and rule. You've made it so that I can because you've taken all the death out of it, all the wickedness out of it. There's nothing but blessing for me. Wait, what what are people going to do to me now? Call me names? John was like, yeah, put me in the oil. Right? He didn't know whether he was really going to boil or not. And the martyrs, right? They're they're there on on the... in the temple, in Rome. And they're saying, okay, renounce. Right? There's the lions that they haven't fed in three weeks. They're about to eat their livers. And they're like, okay, do you recant now of Jesus? They're like, I've, already been, I've already drank the cup. I've been baptized. Do your worst. There's one. There's a guy who was 104 years old, and that's what he said. You do what you got to do, because I'm doing what I got to do. And then he walked away. And you know what they did? They let out the hounds. And they let out the lions, and he went down in glory. He was, right, at, we are capable of doing whatever he needs us to do, whenever he needs us to do it, wherever he needs us to do it, because we've already drank of the cup, we've already been baptized with his baptism. Now, when we go back to him for marching orders, or what we're asking him for is glory for ourselves, Right? Are we just pushing the piece of paper across to him saying, fill the bag with money and be quiet? Or are we saying, listen, now you've taken care of everything, man. You, you've done everything that would hold us back. You've taken care of all of it. So what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to be humiliated? Who do you need me to confess to? Who do you need me to... Right? What do you need me to do? Because at this point, that's what our prayer life should be. What is it today, Lord Jesus Christ, that I could do because you've taken care of the enemy? Where, what victory am I going to go out and get today? Mark chapter 10, verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is those for whom it has been prepared. Now, what is this talking about? I have two questions for you. What was the glory? What is Jesus' glory? What is that glory they mentioned that they want to participate in? I think most of us would say the resurrection, right? Most of us would say the ascension. The ascension, when he goes up into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now, if that's what I think when I think of his glory. And, and now my question is, well, who's, who is, he's there now sitting at the right hand of God. Who's at his right and his left? 
It would be moderately ironic if it was James and John. I, I actually believe that's possible because Jesus has that kind of sense of humor. I don't know. See, his glory isn't his resurrection. That's not the glory that he's talking about. John 13, 31-32, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glory him at once. See, he's, he's about to go out at this portion of John and be crucified. And his crucifixion is his glory. That's Jesus' glory. That Because that shows how far down he was willing to go to save us. And at his right hand and his left hand were two people. Because there, his cross was in the middle, and on either side of his cross were who? Do you know their names? We don't know their names. Do you know their, their histories? Besides the fact that they were condemned, <laughs> they were condemned terrorists? Because that's what they were. Right? We, this is the God you serve. You want to be at his right hand, his left hand, in the moment of his glory? They're not even going to remember your name. No one knows their name. One of them was condemned by Rome. One of them jeered at Jesus. One of them had their eyes pecked out by a crow and then went on to the, the just desserts that he had er, spent a life earning. Damnation and hellfire. Behold, Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Those who reject him, those who live lawless lives, those who live for themselves, <laughs> will have their eyes pecked out by a crow and will go down to hell. And on his other hand was a man condemned by Rome, hanging on a cross, jeering at Jesus, who in the last few moments of his life was taken down by the apostles and baptized. No. Who suddenly Jesus realized, oh, this guy knows all of Isaiah. He must be a true believer. No. Right? <laughs> of all the martyrs, all the people who have died, the, the man who was there at Jesus' glory, the man who was there with him, suffering with him, is this guy who doesn't know Scripture, doesn't receive any of the any of the covenant signs and seals. He's not from the greatest house in Israel. He's not from a great house at all. That man. That man. This is this is that man. For some reason, in, in the infinite wisdom of the triune God, that guy is the guy who participates with Jesus in His glory. That's the guy who cries out on the cross, save me, and all he's got, he doesn't have scripture, he doesn't have the law, he doesn't have covenants, what he's got is Jesus' promise. And we don't even know who he is. Right? We, we want to be like James and John, at least James and John, right? There's this funny story that we've been able to tell, and there's all this stuff they did that's just like us, it's crazy, and it's James and John, we know them, they're the sons of thunder. And, and we think, right, we want to be known for doing great things. We want to enter into God's glory. And, and, and the, the, the Christian who was there is the Christian who's hanging on a cross next to him with nothing but a promise. When the apostles are finally converted, really, and changed, really, 
And they go and they preach the gospel and they're beaten for it and they're, and they're punished for it. They come out of the temple and they're like, right, they've come to understand. They're like, we were found worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Once they came to understood, do you know how much they probably wanted to have been that guy? Because they could have been that guy at Jesus' right hand in his glory. All they had to do was stick with him to the end. And they would have been hanging there next to him. And you know, part of Peter, all the rest of his life, could have been that guy. John could have been that guy. And do you know how hard that must have been for them to get over? To come that close to true greatness. Because in the kingdom of heaven, that's what true greatness is. To hang there next to the Lord Jesus in his humiliation. To be the one with nothing but a promise of God. To be the one to, right? How many times do we use that poor guy in arguments? Well, you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. Well, there's the guy on the cross next to Jesus. You ought to really memorize the Bible. Well, did the guy on the cross next to Jesus memorize the Bible? Yeah, how many times? That guy is used against me now in arguments like I can't even believe. If he were here, he would not like what you're doing. Right? If he were here, he, he, right? he would have come and been like, yeah, I wish I would have had enough time in my life to have been baptized. To have walked around with him, right? He was here on the earth when I was on the earth, and I could have been somebody walking around with him. But I don't care about that, is what he'd say, because I was the guy closest to him when he cried out, It's finished. James and John want to be close to Jesus for their own reasons. And some guy who's as undeserving as the rest, right? This is the guy that's closest to Jesus. And, and in the end, that's all he wanted, right? He says to the other thief, what, what, we're up here and we deserve to be up here. Shut up. And for him, he didn't have all the trappings of religion. He had, he was closest to the only one that matters. Now let this be your prayer. Lord Jesus, Let me be close to you. No matter what happens today, no matter how I fail, no matter what I hope to accomplish for my own glory, let me be like that man on the the cross next to you, the one who could hear you speaking, who could see the blood dripping off your forehead, the one who was near you. Let me just be near you. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. We don't need to fear anything because we've been baptized with his baptism. We have drunk from his cup. We're about to drink from it again. Nothing can touch us. Forget all of that. Lord Jesus, let me be as near to you as that man on the cross. Let my glory be that all I've got is a promise. And it's, but it's your promise. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the disciples. We thank you for the criminals on the crosses to your right hand and to your left. Lord God, we lift them up to you and we just thank you for them, for their witness to us. Throughout time, we see there are two ways to live. There are two ways to go out of this world. And one of them is to be near you and one of them is to be cast far from you. We pray, Lord God, that we would be like that criminal on the cross, that we would want nothing more but to be near you and to have your promise and to live as if that were the only two things that matter. And amen.